Tonight's topic is one really among many uh, that causes outsiders, people outside the faith, to view Christians as backward, uptight, old-fashioned, and prudish, among other words. Our stance on living together before marriage, or the fancy word for this would be cohabitation. If you Google cohabitation, you'll find that it means the state of living together and having a sexual relationship without being married. Now, this arrangement is sometimes viewed in our culture as a preliminary step before marriage, um, a way to test the waters, so to speak. Um, But this is not always the case because the couple might choose to end the relationship if they view themselves as incompatible, uh, or they might never get married if that is not something that's important to them, if if that's not a value of theirs. It it may just go on indefinitely or until they decide to to end that relationship. It's no secret, it's not going to come as a surprise to you, that social mores, social views have changed dramatically on this issue. I'll share some statistics with you later. Uh, That will be stunning, but then again, maybe not. Because you you all see the shift. You all see how the times they are changing, so to speak. And Hollywood, um, among a lot of other cultural factors, has led the way in this shift. A few weeks ago, I watched an old movie. I think it was on Netflix. Called The African Queen. I don't know how many of you have seen this movie. It's from 1951, and it features two of the greatest movie stars from Hollywood's golden era, Humphrey Bogart and Katherine Hepburn. And it's about sort of a hard scrabble boat captain in West Africa and an uptight Methodist missionary. And they are escaping uh, German-occupied West Africa on a riverboat during World War I. So it's kind of an action movie, but don't expect the special effects that we're accustomed to seeing in our movies today. Remember, this was 1951. Uh, but it's also a love story, because as these two float down the river together, uh, a very unlikely pair, they fall in love. And there is a scene in this movie which very subtly suggests that the two main characters who are not married sleep together. Very subtle. Uh, In fact, you might not even draw that conclusion. Some of you might, if you watched it, some of you might not. I mean, they're about to go to sleep and then it cuts to the next morning and they're waking up. So so it's it's up to the interpreter what happens. Uh, But let me give you a little background on on movies in this day and age. The Production Code of 1930, also known as the Hayes Code, was in operation during the time when this movie came out. This code affected the content of all Hollywood films regarding profanity, nudity, sexuality, and other potentially offensive situations. Studios would voluntarily submit their scripts to the Hayes office. It was not required. Um, And... The office would then give them detailed commentary about their movie, and some of which they would take and then make adjustments, but some, some of it was ignored. Why, did, why would the studios do this voluntarily? Well, it was because if you had the Hayes seal of approval, 
it improved your film's chance of success at the box office. And filmmakers also didn't want to offend religious viewers. Now, people in Hollywood were, were no more concerned with morality in those days than they are today. But I guess they were a little more concerned about being offensive to religious viewers. Or maybe that speaks to us in that our, uh, we do not make as high demand on our entertainment as people once did. Um, our expectations are not as high. But the Hayes report on this movie criticized the immoral relationship between the characters. Even over a scene as subtle as the one that I'm talking about uh, in The African Queen. They said it was an immoral relationship. Now that is such a far cry from where our entertainment industry is today. By the way, the Hayes Code was abandoned in 1968, and that is about the time that the Motion Picture Association of America came up with the ratings, uh, the code of ratings that we have for movies today. So this was controversial in 1951. Now, cohabiting couples are present in even movies and TV shows that are viewed as family-friendly fare, as wholesome. Uh, one recent example is the updated version of Disney's Pete's Dragon. I went to see this movie. Great movie. Very sweet movie. And the kids mi missed this. They, they did not catch on to this. But I noticed that there is a couple in that movie, prominent couple. Uh, they're living in the same house, but they are not yet married. I think they were engaged. But they're not married yet. And that's, you know, a PG, family-friendly movie. I took Elise to go see it up at the Oldham. She didn't catch that, but I did. You know, it sort of caught my attention. Uh, because cohabitation is viewed by the culture at large as an expected, even advisable, even recommended arrangement before marriage. So why do Christians still have a problem with it? Uh, is our, opposi our opposition to this just an outdated, stuffy tradition that we need to just sort of leave in our conservative past? The answer, of course, is no. This is not just some arbitrary rule that we've made up. This is not just some tradition that we are clinging to. The reason that we are opposed to living together before marriage, to cohabitation, is rooted in our high view of marriage and God's plan for sexuality. We honor marriage. We try to operate by Hebrews 13.4. You remember what the Hebrews writer has there to say, I don't have this on the screen, so just listen. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Honor marriage. And this is why arrangements like this don't pass muster. This is why we are gravely concerned with this sort of thing. It's not that we are opposed to two people simply living under the same roof. Uh, remember the definition earlier that I shared with you. Cohabitation, the definition, if you just Google it, involves, it assumes, a sexual relationship. So the problem with cohabitation is that it cheapens and it de-emphasizes marriage. It says to the world, marriage is not important to us. It assumes the blessings of marriage without the commitment of marriage. 
And it goes against God's intention for sexuality. Let's go to the Scriptures and see why we believe what we believe about marriage and sex. I'm going to share a few passages of Scripture about which there could be a whole lot more discussion than we have time for tonight. So, if you feel like I am rushing through some of these passages, it's probably because I am. And there are other issues that we could be led into that would be outside the scope of this lesson tonight. So just bear with me, and we'll try to uh, flip through this, at, you know, not too fast, but pretty good speed here. Let's go back to Genesis. We went to Genesis last week when we talked about gender. It, it's so important uh, to go back to the beginning and to see what God's original intention was when He created the world, when He created humanity. And as it was important for us to consider what he has to say about gender, so it is important for us to consider what he has to say about marriage and what his intentions for marriage were from the very beginning. So Genesis chapter 2, uh, verse 24, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So this sort of lays out God's grand vision for marriage, and just as with gender, marriage, the marital relationship, is sort of woven into the fabric of creation. It was an institution, a relationship, a covenant that was established by God when He created the world. And so Christians believe that marriage is not primarily a relationship to fulfill us and make us happy. There are still a lot of positive uh, views about marriage in our culture today, despite all the negative. You know, in watching TV shows and movies, there, there are still a lot of scenes where people get married, and that is sort of the happy ending in a lot of our entertainment. But the view that people outside the faith have about marriage is not as rich and it's not as glorious as we do as Christians. Because I think outside the faith, people just view marriage as a way uh, to um, be blessed and as a way to find satisfaction, as a way to be made happy. And marriage can bless us partially in these ways. And I say partially because we should never seek fulfillment and satisfaction through, through an earthly spouse. Because that comes eventually by God, or now through a relationship with God, and eventually... Uh, in a relationship with God, ultimately. So we can't find complete satisfaction in fulfillment uh, in a spouse, despite what our world tells us. Marriage, the biblical view of marriage, is much more glorious than what other people might think. Marriage is when one man and one woman enter into a covenant relationship, get this, with God and one another. So it's not just about the two people getting married. This a Christian marriage, marriage period, also includes God. And the couple, the man and woman, become one flesh in the sight of God. And this one flesh relationship also includes sexual expression. The sexual relationship uh, is reserved for marriage alone and is a way for the husband and wife to express physically what they feel towards one another and their commitment and devotion to one another. 
So this is God's vision. So from the first book of the New Testament, go with me now to the last book of the New Testament, uh, to Malachi chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. The book of Malachi, written about 400 years before Jesus comes on the scene, sort of the last word for several centuries before we get into the New Testament. And in chapter 2, the second part of verse 15 is where I want to begin, where God says, Take heed then to your spirit, and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth, for I hate divorce, says the Lord. Now this doesn't appear in every translation because apparently it is not attested to in every manuscript that we have of Malachi. So it may or may not, if it doesn't appear in the main text, it will in your Bible in the footnotes. I hate divorce, says God, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously, meaning treacherously with your spouse. Do not mistreat uh, your wife. What this verse reminds us in Malachi is that treating one spouse poorly is not just sinning against her, it's sinning against God. Because he hates divorce. Uh, and he hates that which leads to divorce. Treating a spouse poorly. So, allow this verse to remind us that marriage is bigger than just the two who are married. God is also involved in this relationship. Alright, let's go to the next book of the Bible, Matthew chapter 19. Uh, let me start in verse 3. Matthew 19, verse 3. You will, you will find a parallel of this teaching in the Gospels of Mark and Luke as well, but we're going to use Matthew's account. Verse 3, And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, we've heard that before, have we not? Oh, please nod your head, because we've heard this before within the past 15 minutes. So tell me you're not asleep out there. What, from where is Jesus quoting? Genesis. Genesis 2.24. Jesus is taking... The people who were testing him, these Pharisees, all the way back to the beginning. And he says, have you not read this? That a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one. Now, this is Jesus. They are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. We hear that often uh, in weddings when a man and woman are making their vows to one another. But they said to him, why then, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? They are speaking there of Deuteronomy. Oh, goodness. Deuteronomy 20. I don't want to get this wrong. Deuteronomy 24. Uh, 
24. Yes, thank you. We're not going to look at it, but I just wanted to be accurate in my reference there. Uh, They are referring to um, the law of Moses, Deuteronomy 24. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. Now, we could really dig into this, but suffice it to say, Jesus says, Moses made a concession because of widespread, widespread rebellion against God and his vision for the marriage relationship. But from the beginning, it was not so. I want to take you all the way back to the beginning. I want to remind you of God's original vision, the original intention for marriage as a lifelong covenant. So scratch what Moses conceded. This is now what I'm saying. He said, from the beginning it was not so. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So Jesus here reestablishes marriage in a first century Jewish world and thinking, which allowed divorce for a number of reasons. Uh, He reestablishes marriage as a lifelong permanent covenant. And he says the only reason that one has to dissolve this covenant is if his or her spouse is sexually immoral. The word porneia is used here, and that means uh, unfaithful, where there has been infidelity. And so divorce and remarriage on the grounds of sexual immorality are not prohibited and thus do not constitute adultery. And so this is Jesus' sole exception. Why? Why would Jesus make this the only exception? Because this is the big point that I'm trying to make in using this verse tonight as we think about God's high view of marriage and sexuality. It's because sexual immorality, sleeping with someone other than your spouse, uh, grievously defiles and indeed corrupts this one flesh union this covenant relationship that God has established. So this speaks to God's high view of the sexual relationship in marriage. Now, another note, even though divorce is allowed for this reason, doesn't mean it's required. A lot of uh, first century Jewish thought said, when a spouse is unfaithful, you must divorce. Jesus says, you are allowed to divorce. But certainly, couples can choose to reconcile and in many cases uh, should be encouraged to seek restoration and forgiveness, as difficult as that may be. But Jesus does allow uh, divorce on these grounds. And he makes the one exception because because of the sacredness of the sexual relationship and, and how that, when that is violated, the damage that it does. Okay, this is one of those passages that we could really talk more about, but we're going to move on uh, tonight. Acts chapter 15. My goodness, another that probably you'll walk away having questions about. Acts 15, verses 19 and 20. uh, These are the verses that I'm going to read. But what's going on in Acts 15? Well, Jews and Gentiles are trying to get along in church. And the gates of the kingdom have swung open wide to welcome in outsiders, Gentiles. 
But the Jews are concerned about these outsiders coming in and what, what is required of them. Are they still required to um, operate by a lot of the rules and regulations of the Old Testament? Specifically on the docket in Acts 15 is circumcision. There were some Jews who said, these Gentile believers, they've got to be circumcised or else they're not going to be saved. So a big conference happens in Jerusalem, which was the home of sort of the mother church and the birthplace of Christianity, the place where Jesus died and was raised. And everybody's there. You know, Paul's there. Barnabas is there. Peter and the apostles and the elders and everybody in the early church, they convene to discuss these matters. What is required of Gentiles? And... and James, the brother of Jesus, who is a leader in the church at Jerusalem, concludes with this. Verse 19, I hope that's enough background. Verse 19 and 20. My judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. In, in other words, they do not have to pass through all of the rites and regulations of Judaism in order to become Christian. But, we should write to them to abstain. Here's his list. Abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from what has been strangled, and from blood. If Gentiles do these things, then they will not be offensive to the Jews with whom they are now in fellowship through Christ. Now, a lot of commentators believe that three of these um, abstain from things polluted by idols don't eat what's been strangled and from blood, are sort of conditional, they're sort of contextual based on the environment. This this, um, prohibition with sexual immorality, that is not. And again, that's sort of outside our conversation about these requirements. But this thing about sexual immorality, this prohibition is attested to throughout the rest of the New Testament. So this is not just a temporary concession. This is something that was true of of Jews in the Old Testament. James says it's now going to be true of Jewish Christians. It's now going to be true of Gentile Christians. This would have been difficult for Gentile Christians, many of whom were coming out of a pagan, pagan background where all sorts of sexual activity was permissible, acceptable. But James says, inspired by the Holy Spirit here, as a result of this council, when they come into the church, they are expected to operate by a pretty strict code of behavior that's rooted in the Jewish Scriptures and now carries into the Christian age. The sexual relationship is reserved for marriage and marriage alone. And you must put away all of that immorality that, that you have in your past when you become a Christian. So sexual immorality here makes the cut for what should be required of Gentile converts um, I love this quote from from David Young, who's the preacher at North Boulevard in Murfreesboro. He says in a book, in a world where sex was more casual than dinner, the early church took the strident position that sex only belonged in heterosexual, lifelong, monogamous marriage. And that, to me, really gets across this idea that this, this... was a countercultural position. As much, even more so than it is in our society today, as loose, sexually speaking, as our society is, 
pagan culture in the first century was even more so. And so this requirement would not have been easy, and it was not convenient, but that is what the early church insisted on. Why? Because sexual behavior is so closely linked with with personal and spiritual well-being. They cannot be separated. And so in order to flourish as a human, in order to have a right relationship with God, you've got to operate by a certain code of conduct, sexually speaking. Um, Of course, this position is nothing new for the early church because it's rooted in God's original intention for His human creation. All this makes me think, you know, what we really need in this culture is a new sexual revolution. We had one in the 60s that really loosened... um, people's views about sexuality. What we need is one that reestablishes God's view of sex and what it's all about. And that means the church has to talk about it. And we, we have to bravely and eloquently and openly talk about God's beautiful vision for the sexual relationship. It was God's idea, and we're God's people, and yet we're so often silent about it, and we let everybody else communicate their view uh, louder and more forcefully than, than we do. Why? We are the worst for it. We've got to be as uncomfortable as it may be with our children, with our grandchildren, with one another. We've got, we've got to talk about it. And we've got to present in a, in, a, in a winsome way what is God's will for sex. Uh, so, after all this, I, here's what I want to say. Don't mishear me. I'm not saying by laying this vision out that you can't be forgiven if you've fallen short of God's plan in regard to sexuality and marriage. I want you to know for those of us who have sinned and sinned sexually, that there is abundant grace for you at the cross of Christ. There is. And praise God for that. Uh, But you do have to repent of your sins. You cannot continue in sexual immorality, which is rebellion against God, and expect forgiveness. Now, there's a lot of other passages that we could talk about in regard to marriage and sexuality. We could talk about Ephesians 5. Uh, in which Paul says marriage refers to Christ and the church. Marriage is a mysterious illustration of Christ's special relationship with the church. How awesome is that? But we're going to move on here, and um, let's talk about some maybe some common objections that we might hear from people over our position uh, on living together before marriage, which I hope, We've gone beyond just that and gone deeper and we understand now why we stand where we stand. Uh, But what about somebody, what about a couple who says, how will we know if our marriage is going to work unless we do a test run first? Uh, Cohabitation is the smartest option in the long run. I mean, We need to know whether or not we're compatible. Well, in addition to the biblical concerns that we have laid out, we could also let them know that this is simply misguided thinking. 
This is not borne out by the facts. Listen to the New York Times, an op-ed piece, which, of course, you know the New York Times is not really known for its conservatism. (laughs) Uh, This was an op-ed piece from 2012. The writer says, Cohabitation in the United States has increased by more than 1,500% in the past half century. You did not misunderstand me. I said 1,500%. In 1960, about 450,000 unmarried couples lived together. Now the number is more than 7.5 million. Uh, The majority of young adults in their 20s will live with a romantic partner at least once, and more than half of all marriages will be preceded by cohabitation. The shift has been attributed to the sexual revolution, the availability of birth control, and in our current economy, sharing the bills makes cohabiting appealing, so economically appealing. But when you talk to people in their 20s, you also hear about something else, cohabitation as prophylaxis, meaning a preventative measure to prevent something from happening. A nationwide survey conducted in 2001, so this is pretty, this is pretty dated by the National Marriage Project, then at Rutgers, now at the University of Virginia. Nearly half of 20-somethings agreed with this statement. Uh, So these are people who would be in their late 30s and 40s now. Uh, You would only, half of them agreed with this. You would only marry someone if he or she agreed to live together with you first so that you could find out whether you really get along. So, there is this conventional wisdom that this is, this is a wise step in order to figure out if this is going to work. About two-thirds said they believed that moving in together before marriage, was, before marriage was a good way to avoid divorce. But that belief is contradicted by experience. According to the statistics, couples who cohabit before marriage and especially before an engagement or an otherwise clear commitment tend to be less satisfied with their marriages. This is the New York Times. And more likely to divorce than couples who do not. These negative outcomes are called, this even has a title, the cohabitation effect. And everybody's like, why? You know, why would this not work? And we're like, we know why. Because we're not operating by God's good plan. I mean, the main reason cohabitation doesn't work is a lack of commitment. The, re- the researchers call it sliding, not deciding. We're sort of sliding into a relationship. We're not making a firm commitment to the person. We're dating, then we're sleeping over at each other's houses, then we're doing that a lot, and before we know it, we're living under the same roof. And there's not been a firm commitment made. Um, you can't found a relationship on convenience or ambiguity and expect it to work. We might doesn't engender the same level of dedication as we do, or I do, or I will, that you say at the altar when you get married. And furthermore, it demonstrates a lack of trust in an outright disregard for God's plan. All right, let's move on. Some people might say this, we don't need a marriage license to show we're married. What difference does a piece of paper make anyway? We're married in God's eyes. Here is a preacher I greatly respect on this. Different cultures have different ways of sealing a marriage covenant between a man and a woman. In our culture, sealing that covenant includes a license, an officiant, witnesses, rings, etc. To bypass that and say, we love each other and that's all that matters, is to dishonor marriage and to dishonor the marriage bed. Love is not all you need. 
You need commitment. You need societal, legal, and spiritual accountability. That's what making a marriage covenant is all about. Can't we just make up our own ceremony? You might ask. I don't think so. I think that ignores the whole purpose. The purpose is to call your family, friends, the church, and even the legal powers that be to bind you to the other in marriage. So we're not just making a commitment to one another. We are making a commitment before all of these other parties. Marriage is true love. True selfless love expressed. It is saying, everyone witness this, I am mine no more. I am binding myself to my beloved until death do we part. If I do not keep my covenant to my beloved, I understand and I accept the legal, spiritual, and social consequences. Okay, one more. What about a couple who is already living together and they are planning to get married and they say it is simply unfeasible for us to live Separately. At the very, very least, this couple should be admonished to abstain from a sexual relationship until they get married. And I'll leave that at that. Um, At the end of the day, here's a good question for couples who are considering this arrangement to ask, why do we want to live together? If there is a couple and they're thinking about this, this is a good question to ask. Is it because everybody else is doing it? Well, since when did we take our cues from what everybody else is doing? If we did what everybody else is doing, we would be in a really bad way. So that's not a good reason. Is it to experience the blessings of marriage? Then get married. Or wait until you get married. Is it to enjoy a sexual relationship? Well, we've already established that God intends for sexual expression to be reserved for marriage alone. Is it to see if we'll get along fine when we get married? Well, we've seen already This doesn't work. And what's more, it degrades the marriage relationship. Is it because it's the most economically efficient arrangement? But think about what it communicates to others, both believers and non-believers alike. It communicates that marriage is not important. It's not sacred to us. What about a couple who says, don't worry, we won't sleep together. Okay. Then why needlessly, unnecessarily, create a highly tempting situation. Here's where I'm going to close. In honor of Mother's Day a few years back, Southern Living Magazine featured several African-American ladies from the Mississippi Delta. Got one of their pictures up here, I think. Who were matriarchs of their families. One of the ladies was this lady, Velma T. Moore, from Grapeland, Mississippi. Mother of 15 children. Grandmother of 145, 33 great-grands, 23 great-great-grands. And the quote from her that appeared in the magazine was about marriage. And here's what she said. No, indeed, I don't like that, that talk about divorce. No, if you're going to marry somebody, you're supposed to marry them. You said till death do us part. You hang there. It's going to be dark days, light days, but you're supposed to hang there until death do you apart. And I always say, Lord, I want one husband. I want all my children to be by that one man. And God fixed it so. We got 15 heads. That's the first man I married. Never been married no more and never will. No, I will not. (laughs) And I got 15 children by that one man and I thank God. And I did just like he said. We was not divorced. I'm still Mrs. Moore. I'll be Mrs. Moore until I'm dead and gone. And I'll still be Mrs. Moore. Well, I think Mrs. Moore, Mrs. Velma T. Moore from Grapeland, Mississippi, gets it. 
Would you pray with me as we close?